0: Not more bhagavato Sir Bagavato, Rahato, Sama, some Buddhasa. Not more to Sir Bagavato, Rahato, Sama, some Buddhasa. Not more to Sir Bagavato, Rahato, Masami. Good evening, Portland friends of the Dhamma. Uh, this is our November uh, visit, and the uh, last time we'll be coming in for this year. And it's probably even the last time we'll come to visit the Friday night until uh, next spring. Um, we're moving towards our winter retreat period at the Pacific Hermitage. Um, which will start on December 1st, so uh, time of year I always look forward to, uh, and uh, the seasons are changing, there uh, be a little shift in the uh, Sangha um, Venerable Gunaviro on my Right here, who has been with us, along with Venerable Kantiko, um since April, um, is going to be going back uh, to Abayagiri for the winter retreat, and uh, uh, a, Thai, a very lovely Thai monk who's been living at Abayagiri for the last couple of years, Hachan Sekhsan, known as Ajahn Sekh, um, will be coming up. Um, to spend the winter at the hermitage with us, which would be nice. He's a lovely monk, quite experienced, and uh, maybe just a tad bit younger than me. And it's uh, been ordained just a couple years less, but still probably 20 some years of practice. Uh, so, and although we'll be on retreat, there's still. Opportunities for people to come out to the hermitage and offer meals, um, particularly on the weekends. So, and uh, I'll try to be a little more strict and not talk too much. Uh, so, and I won't make too many exceptions uh, outside of the weekends and stuff. So if people want to come out, I encourage you to contact the meal coordinator and please come out it's quite nice and i-84 isn't always dangerous and treacherous there are many days in the winter where it's quite safe to drive out and visit so you're welcome to come visit us out there my dream someday is that i will never come into portland And I'll just be out there in my cootie and in the forest. And whenever you want dhamma, you go out there and visit me. That's the way it's supposed to work. (laughs) So um, I've failed spectacularly at being a hermit to date, but I haven't given up. So someday I will succeed. And uh, if you want to visit the hermit, go to the hermitage. So... uh, but it's interesting the uh, the hermitage right now it's lost a lot of its leaves and the creek is trying to get going and the angle of the sun is low um, and it's, it's kind of wonderful we we're talking with someone today oh, I think it was when we went to the school and I was talking about winter coming up and there was a bit of a groan sort of hmm (laughs) and uh it's kind of a common feeling people have especially when you live in a place where it gets a little colder than portland in the winter and there's a, a bit more chance that you'll be dealing with snow and ice and cold temperatures um But it's something I always look forward to, and I love the place we live, because you have a real clear change of seasons. Uh, Like, I lived in Thailand for a while, and I think when I was first there, there was a fairly clear change in seasons, but maybe only three. (laughs) And they traditionally just have what they call the cold season, the hot season, and the rainy season. So... But it's nice to sort of see that change, and uh, it's nice to move uh, and change our schedule. And part of what I enjoy about being a monk in this particular tradition is we change roles, we change monasteries, we change cooties, and through the year we go through um, some pretty radical sort of changes and and how it is that we orient ourselves and spend our time um, and Uh, although change is part of the ingredient that supports our experience of suffering, um, it's also something that gives us a great opportunity to kind of learn. So, and uh, we organize our monastic life um, in our monasteries in the West so that in the, the wintertime we set aside our, external sort of travels and we quit building and try to simplify things as much as possible to kind of return to the heart of monastic practice and study uh, for several months. So, um, and in the West in particular, um, a cold country, it, it feels appropriate to kind of do that in the winter it's like the, the leaves drop and the weather gets a little cold and nasty. And there's something about even the, the look of the forest that uh, is still and inward facing. Uh, and I don't, I don't know, I just looked out the other day, sort of, it was like midday and the sun was still low, just barely kind of clipping through the tops of the trees and just kind of thinking. There's something about the feeling of the quality of light that uh, is so different than the spring or the summer or something. And I was just sort of thinking, ah, here we are. Won't be long now. Snow will be on the ground. (laughs) Uh, Time to meditate. (laughs) So, when we started tonight, I... Lit the candles, uh, the big candles. Uh, add a little extra light. Uh, something I think about oftentimes as we move into the wintertime. Uh, it's kind of season where the sun has moved away and there is less light, and it feels a little different being a human on Earth with a little less light. Uh, and the more northern your climate, the more different it gets. Um, I don't know that I have seasonal affect disorder. In fact, I'm pretty sure I don't. But still, we, we're we all sensitive and we can feel this if we're uh, somewhat attuned to it. And, and uh, paying attention to the rhythms of nature. Uh, I've told this story before, but... I felt it really profoundly a number of years ago when I went up to Birkin Monastery for the winter, and the summer solstice, uh, they have about 18 hours of light, and the winter solstice, they have about 18 hours of dark. Um, And... uh, That's the first time I'd ever spent a winter in such a cold, snowy climate uh, and such a dark place. It's not something I'd really kind of thought about much. I just went up there about this time of year and uh, was prepared to kind of like settle in and get ready for uh, three months of winter retreat. And... uh, for those of you who've been there in the last, who've been to Birkin before, you know how they have this kind of beautiful sort of Dhamma hall with a nice black floor. Um, and back in those days, before Ajahn Sona had built all the kinds of insulated panels, there was like this wall of glass, um, which was black <laughs> in the morning and in the night. Uh, and we had lots and lots of structured meditation. Uh, just sitting in that hall with a black floor, candlelight, and this wall of black glass, and the place that they had my seat was kind of over near the window, and I could just feel this kind of cold air, sort of like constantly, sort of flowing down the glass and breezing past me. Uh, I just felt like this cold monster, kind of breathing on your neck or something, like a ghost. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I was quite excited for the beginning of the winter retreat, but you know I noticed like a few weeks in the the darkness and the coldness kind of starting to sort of affect me on some way on some level, and uh, I noticed it uh, particularly I strongly sort of when I sometimes go out for a walk in the afternoon and all of a sudden the sun would start kind of, the sky would start sort of moving into twilight. And I'd look at my watch and it was like three o'clock or 3.30 or something. And all of a sudden my heart started sinking as well. Like, here we go again. <laughs> the descent into the darkness. <laughs> uh, and I remember feeling kind of like surprised about it. By the time I was aware that it was affecting me, I was kind of surprised by that. Um, And it really was this kind of, like, dark thought in my mind, like, uh, that I'd never experienced, this kind of, like, dread of the night, the long night. (laughs) Uh, And this went on for a little bit uh, of time, and uh, to a certain extent, I succumbed. To it, and I sort of developed this little habit, like it, uh, and I started to make a point to kind of, when it was light, to go outside and be in the light. Um, but eventually, I got to this kind of place where I started thinking that, why, wow, kind of like, maybe you need to adjust when you live in a climate like this, uh, and uh, and maybe not just run outside and seek the lightness, but uh, turn inward and look at how you're kind of living and thinking and practicing uh, and generate your own light. Um, there's numerous kind of passages in the sutras where the Buddha talks about something he calls the hubris of youth. And you sort of just take for granted the kind of Benefits of youth, energy, beauty, vitality. Uh, um, And there's a kind of hubris or a heedlessness when we're kind of experiencing kind of fortunate circumstances in our life that comes to us quite natural. Yeah. We're not all that different than a domesticated cat or dog. You know, as long as we have safety and we're well fed, we're quite content just to kind of curl up and sleep most of the day, uh, which is not how a canine or a feline animal sort of lives in the wild, right? Um, and, and in some sense, the seasons are a bit like that too. Like the spring and the summer are uh, analogous to uh, youth and beauty there's a kind of brightness and a vitality that uh, if you're sensitive to it you can sort of feel and the sun brings that energy and light into our days Uh, and in the winter uh, we don't have that benefit or that external blessing Um, and so I came to sort of Uh, experience and even sort of develop a little bit of a habit this time of year of thinking about the responsibility of uh, bringing your own light or generating your own light or turning towards the light. Uh, and ways of thinking and speaking and acting or ways of practicing and you know, quite literally how you spend your day um, focused on the generation of that which is bright. Um, and it can be as simple as lighting a few candles uh, and chanting some uh, beautiful and yet wise chants and making uh, the offering of puja, of devotion to Dharma Sangha. We have this kind of beautiful shrine here. And uh, part of the reason it's there is so that we can engage in that kind of uh, bright, beautiful sort of offering of chanting these uh, honorific uh, recollections of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and to do so, like, together in the presence of other people, uh, full of will and faith um, but looking looking um, for other ways that kind of maybe more directly sort of align with our practice um, you know what are some practical ways to so you'll be the source of your own sort of inner light um, you know And, you know, one is to really sort of put aside the obsession with self and turn towards selfless giving and selfless generosity. And I think last time I was here I talked about that a lot, so I won't talk about that much. Um, But uh, self-obsessiveness and uh, the narrowness of self and selfishness and stinginess is on the side of that which is not so bright Um, and looking for opportunities to give to serve, to be selfless, to be kind uh, and give to others is quite naturally sort of brightens uh, our mind and brightens our life brightens our relationships that we have with other people Um, and is something that should be Uh, attended to, not neglected uh, every day in some little way Uh, don't let a day go by where you're just thinking about yourself or you're just taking off the boxes and doing your kind of responsibilities like it's like taking the initiative or being like looking for opportunities to kind of to give and to be kind or something is something that for, for me, it sort of brings that extra kind of brightness. It's not just doing the expected. Um, and it can be as simple as just being kind of yielding or kind or helpful or supportive, but uh, uh, also I mean, giving and serving uh, in ways that uplift the heart and not neglecting that. Uh, in the realm of of virtue or ethics paying particular attention to speech um, I think of winter as a time to really experiment with solitude and silence um, and that's maybe the monastic in me but uh, part of the emphasis on silence is because we're so lousy uh, in our habits of speaking. Um, it's difficult, actually, to live up to keeping the fourth precept sort of purely as you move through the day, and not distorting the truth and not speaking in sort of frivolous ways or harsh ways or divisive ways. Um, and really has a strong uh, effect on us you know, many of you have done long retreats and have experienced just the difference and sort of like setting aside speech, good speech and bad speech um, for a number of days and like how much energy that can kind of bring to us. And part of what's going on there is the the sort of debits that are um, unskillful forms of speech, um, even if it's just like, scattered speech, frivolous speech, things like this. I mean, that it, it has a kind of cost on the kind of brightness and the inner kind of energy that the mind has. Uh-huh. And um, so one of the ways to kind of lighten things up is to mm, incline to speaking less or, you know, really being a bit more careful about speaking in ways that are, Uh, assuredly sort of positive and skillful. Um, And uh, I'm not advocating noble silence in your household or your workplace. I think that probably is impractical and would not work. (laughs) But there's always opportunities to kind of like just dial it back a little bit and also seek um, times of the day and periods Uh, You know, where you're enjoying uh, the bliss of silence and solitude a bit more. Um, And also turn up the effort to sort of speak in skillful ways. And it's not really so connected with the precepts, but more so with the Buddha's kind of encouragement of what you attend to, how you spend your time. Ah and how you relate to living in the sense realm. Um, And the speech of others has a huge effect on us as well. Uh, And oftentimes we're pretty careless or carefree or kind of heedless in what we give our attention to. Uh, And uh, we give our attention to to people and voices and even sort of situations sometimes that um, really aren't bringing us tremendous benefit and might be kind of costing us in terms of the kind of brightness uh, that we could be kind of experiencing. Yeah. I'm thinking in particular our obsession with everything that's wrong in the world and the whole realm of news and politics. Uh, uh, so you know a measure of of guarding the senses and being a bit more um, heedful and careful in what it is that you attend to, what it is that you engage with um, and I, you know in the monastery sometimes i I remember back to that winter like in a certain thought. Patterns or thought habits or emotional habits that I have that would really, like, have the potential to sort of bring me down. And I remember sort of thinking, I need to be a little more careful than I normally am. I can't let myself kind of go down this kind of road, you know, where I'm sort of doubting myself or berating myself or um, just having kind of careless conversations and sometimes in the monastery, you, know, you sort of end up having this very fun but somewhat frivolous conversation with one of your fellow monks. Um, and then you go back to your cootie or you go back to the meditation hall to sort of meditate or something. And and uh, even though it's like such a small thing, sometimes you just feel like the negative effects of that, like the restlessness of it, but also sort of like, oh, I shouldn't have... <laughs> I shouldn't have sort of blown all my energy on sort of that sort of uh, talk. And, you know, usually we're not talking sports or politics or something. Like sometimes you're even just talking about the the Dhamma or practice or something, but it, there's a way that you can talk about it which is maybe more about the connection and the joy of just chatting with another person um, than really trying to Uh, enlighten yourself. (laughs) So, uh, the word kind of heat, heatfulness like keeps coming up again and again. Just being a bit more heatful around that. Uh, And of course, in the realm of practice, um, It's a great time of year to redouble your efforts uh, at generating uh, goodwill and loving kindness for self and others Uh, again and again and again, both on the mat and off the mat, um, in body, speech, and mind, Uh, and to really make a a strong habit of that. I mean, it's like... um, not just a wonderful meditation or something that kind of Buddha praised. I mean, it has this extra beauty and brightness to it or something that mm, is really special to uh, so sit and, and generate sort of thoughts of goodwill and well-being for self and others um, or to use the kind of beautiful imagery we have in this teaching of, like, spreading it in uh, the four quarters in all directions, to all beings everywhere, abundant, exalted, immeasurable. Um, Kind of practice that and grow our capacity to sort of generate that. I mean, that has a really wonderful sort of bright, quality that it kind of brings into uh, not just our meditation, but I think it infuses itself into sort of the, the actions and speech and the, many of the background sort of just emotional tone of our day, um, kind of activating and practicing those habits, uh, which, you know, we can easily neglect... Um, and I kind of think of this time of year is it's often a time where I kind of make maybe a little more commitment to myself to make sure that I'm doing some loving-kindness practice on uh, at least a daily sort of basis. Um, and the realm of our uh, meditation in general Uh, Focusing in on joy, Uh, like really figuring out how to enjoy, to connect with, to get into the meditation in a way that nurtures a a real sense of joy. Um, And... I think it's easy for us to kind of relate to our meditation practice in a way that's uh, a bit absent of that. And uh, what I'm thinking of here is just like having a bit more mindfulness and a bit more of a strategy of bringing that to mind sort of... um, with however it is that you meditate. Um, Joy, of course, is one of the things that we're really aiming for in the cultivation of our serenity meditation, our samadhi. That's one of the kind of factors of uh, sama samadhi. When the mind sort of successfully can sort of connect with uh, joy and happiness Of being wholeheartedly with the object of the breath or the object of our meditation, Uh, it's intrinsically sort of joyous and happy. Uh, It's it's just a true delight. Uh, And uh, it's easy to spend a lot of our time meditating in a way that's uh, a bit too dutiful. Uh, are maybe a bit too hopeful. Like dutiful meaning like you're just kind of going through the steps and we all have our kind of habits of how we approach meditation and, and it's hard to constantly really be there sensing sort of like what it, is that the, what it is that the mind needs and what it is that's kind of lacking in the meditation and, and correctly sort of adjusting for that. Uh, and a lot of that is how it is that we deal with and overcome the hindrances that 's kind of the classical way of thinking about that um, but you know if it, if the meditation isn 't joyous and pleasant, then you can be sure that you 're not successfully overcoming the hindrances <laughs> so um And some of it is like just attending to sort of like what's going on. Is the mind, is desire obstructing? Is aversion or ill will obstructing the mind? Is there not enough energy in the mind? Is there a kind of laxness in the effort or dullness in the mind? Or is there excessive restlessness that's obscuring this kind of happy, joyous, uh, whole hard experience of my meditation. Uh, those in particular are things that are obstructing that, you know. And like just like finding ways to overcome that, and sometimes it's just reminding yourself, "Hey, I'm supposed to be having fun here." <laughs> uh, this, this is not supposed to be about suffering, like your meditation. Uh, uh, and, you know, it's, it's tricky because we can't just totally rely on habits and we can't totally just force this sort of experience. But, um, you know, with practice and the development of skill, like we kind of learn how to move just like you learn how... A, learn how to dance or learn how to move or learn how to ride a bike. Uh, and you know, so as a meditator, you need to sort of figure that one out and learn how to get to the place where there is a sense of, of joy. And it doesn't mean you have to be tearing up with joy. or I mean, there's so many ways that you can connect with that and experience it, but uh, it should be It should be brought to mind, and we should be trying to sort of move ourselves in that way. And if not, then we'll be kind of sensing or rubbing up against those hindrances that are obstructing the experience of joy. Um, But I think a big part of it is just like reminding yourself, like, hey, I'm moving towards serenity and happiness and joy. How is it I can sort of adjust this giving of attention to the breath or the object of my meditation in a way that brings that to mind. Uh, And connects with that. Um, And maybe lastly... um, It's a great time of year to sort of make a more dedicated sort of effort to revisit teachings that we find uh, enlivening and inspiring. Uh, And I find sometimes when I go back to the suttas and I'm reading them, and you come to a particular... um, Insightful sort of teaching or inspiring teaching or something. Um, somehow the rightness of it, the truth of it, the, um, the fact that somebody could teach in such a distant place so long ago and somehow this truth can still be relevant and useful to me and my predicament. Uh, it's just, it's it's amazing and it's enlivening and sometimes um, the best of the teachings. Like, you know, I I love reading Ajahn Chah over and over and I was just thinking the other day sort of what might I be doing this winter and the idea sort of came to me that maybe I'd like to go back and reread and listen to some of Ajahn Chah's teachings and um, I've been through those many times Um, and it's always amazing when I go back like how there's something else there. I mean, there's things that I've forgotten or haven't brought to mind for a while, but also sometimes um, there's some extra sort of insightful sort of imagery or insight or something that he has that just really <laughs> impresses me. Uh, and the same is true, maybe even more so for many of the of the sutta teachings. And... Um, it's beautiful to sort of turn to those and our, you know, Dhamma talks from your favorite teachers. Uh, we live in this incredible, incredibly fortunate age where there's an abundance of good friends and wise advisors um, in all forms of media <laughs> out there, uh, even on YouTube. <laughs> uh, and... um Yeah, to set aside time to connecting with the kind of the beauty of the Dhamma as well. So those are a few thoughts as we're kind of moving into winter. And uh, I wasn't actually going to say very much tonight. I was just going to. give a few short reflections and take some questions, but um, I'll leave it at that. And there's time for maybe one or two questions. might be wrong about the time.